When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Gabby Reese, and welcome to the show. My guest today is actor, comedian, child star, and now author, Josh Peck. And we had a great conversation. I know Josh, and he is a really curious and fun and soft human person. And he has a new book out called Happy People Are Annoying, and he gets into it. He talks about feeling different and growing up without knowing his father, being really overweight as a young kid, never mind on TV, how he lost the weight, but didn't really get to why food became the outlet and that turned into a drug and alcohol addiction. So he loses the weight, then he has to contend with an addiction, how he recovered from that. And that journey is, listen, not only is it heavy, but he makes it really funny. And just where he's at now, you know, he's a dad and a husband and still looking at things. I mean, Josh goes back to acting school He said, you know, listen, I was the most, quote, successful person in there and the worst actor in the class. The conversation is inspiring, how he lost the weight, how he keeps it off, and just how he also has learned not to run away. I think a lot of us, when we suffer pain when we're young, the minute it gets hard or we feel vulnerable, we run away. And he just shares how he lives now has helped him, you know, not do that. I love Josh, and it was just a really fun conversation. And I hope you enjoy the show. Josh Peck, we're switching the order. You were talking to me, and now I'm excited I get to talk to you. Oh, man, what an honor. And thank you for coming my way. And congratulations on your new book. Thank you. I am so glad to, you know, I feel like I don't see you and Laird that much, but I feel like this kinship and so to be able to share it with you and have you read it uh, meant a lot. Well, I I read the book and it's uh, titled Happy People Are Annoying, which I thought was very uh, appropriate coming from you. Mm. Because in that title for me, the thing that comes across is, is sort of the pushing outwardness of you, your funniness, your friendliness. And then like the part where you're sort of like, is that okay? Hmm. You know, you sort of really get into that duality in the book of, I think a lot of times people are distracted by the comedy and they don't actually see what the person is going through. Hmm. I mean, that's like the oldest story in the book about comedians, you know, the pain. Yes. And then we'll, we'll put the comedy in front. So I have to ask as somebody who has worked for a lot of years in a lot of different ways what made you think, oh, yeah, I'm going to take on writing a book? The advance. 
Seriously? So no. How'd you get it in advance in books these days? That's amazing. It was insane. No, it's no. so great. But who doesn't love money? No, right, okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta stay practical. You have a family. That helps. No, my son loves diapers and all the necessities. <laughs> um, you know, I, to your point, I, I've lived this incredibly public life inadvertently in front of the camera since I was twelve. And I'm part of sort of that last generation, I think, where we grew up where famous people were mysterious and they kept a guard, they kept their real life completely sectioned off and what they presented to the world was kind of what they wanted people to see. And now in sort of the new age of social media and whatnot, everything is is out there for people to consume and almost to a fault. But I found that all of a sudden I was 35, I had a wife and a son, I'd grown up and I had faced these challenges that I'd never quite shared with people. And so in, in order for me to sort of make peace with my origin story and everything that I'd been through, I felt the need to be honest with my audience and say, you know, for me, what got me through were people sharing their own trials and tribulations and feeling that power of me too and perspective and so the only way that my experience will be of value is if perhaps I can help someone else through what they're going through. Yeah. And I think when you write a book, which by the way, I can feel you through the whole book, your voice. I was saying earlier, I'll be interested to see, I think it'll be a great joy to listen to the audible because you read it, mm. but your voice is very clear in the book. Like, you know, okay, reader, I thought we were friends, you know, like <laughs> I feel you in this, which I appreciate, but also... There's so many points in this book, whether it was taking care of your health or how you managed it or finding something to escape in or dealing with your business. Mm. There's so many points that are relatable for people. So it's not about, yes, you use acting and such as a platform to tell your story, but it's really about you, the human being. So I, mm. I really think you did a, a, an incredible job. And I, I know books are hard. And then there's something kind of liberating too about putting your story I would imagine out there once and for all, and then go, okay, great. Now we're, we're on to the next. That's a great, that, that's such a good point that you make. And I think that's true. Weirdly now starting to talk about the book and, and promoting it a bit, these stories, which really had a lot of power over me from as far back as I can remember talking about, you know, I felt like I needed to hide my career insecurity from the world or kind of what it felt like to be 100 pounds overweight on television at 16. Like there were so many moments where I just felt like, ah, better to just make a joke and move on. Mm. But in facing it, I think you're right. I'm able to sort of move on. And, you know, the comedians talk about when you're a young comedian and you're bombing, the only, the, really the, the worst thing you can do is to not acknowledge what's happening because all comedians bomb. It's just a part of it. It's got to be bad at first. But as you get more, uh, become more of a craftsman, you're able to let the air out of the balloon in front of the audience. You can make them comfortable with the fact that like, welcome to a comedy show. This is the rough side of what I do, but we're on the ride together. And this is my... This is my sort of attempt at letting the air out of the balloon and saying, we're all here together. I'm human. You just maybe watched me growing up. And I think the, the, the way to really paint yourself into a corner is by acting like it never happened and completely trying to negate your origin story. It makes me think of something where you, you say in the book, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit about how you sort of, even though 
you're in this body now for a long time, you always still identified as sort of, you know, the fat kid. Yeah. And I think a lot of us have a story, even though we're not living in it anymore, we're still dictated by those rules of engagement. Mm. You know, whether it's like, oh, my mom was mean to me or I got teased at school, but it's like, oh no, but you're living a successful life and that doesn't exist anymore. And I think a lot of us live in an old story. So Mm. you, you frame it very like perfectly. Cause to look at you, it's like, I look at you today as you are now. Sure. You're not the fat kid. Yeah. And so it's all of us experience that. I had a friend who played football and he said, you know, his parents, he's from Pennsylvania, very tough guy, did, didn't say I love you very much. Mm. And he's like, I had to rework it because he's in a loving marriage. He has two kids. It's grown. It's like, that story's over. Yes. How do you, how do you heal from that? And I think you, you know, that's, that's, you show this in this book. So Let's go back and I want to take a little bit of a journey through the book because I, I think there's so many things to it. Um, you know, sort of the the deli meeting, if you will, <laughs> with your mom. I mean, <laughs> your mom's kind of wild at that. I mean, oh, you yeah. know what? It's like, it's a funny how we always have these ideas about people, but it's like sometimes people have wild things happen. Oh, you're, <laughs> you're so right. And there's nothing I love talking about more than my conception. <laughs> I, yeah, my mom... You know, my mom was this, you know, self-made single woman, you know, she's, my mom is 77, so she was born in the 40s, like World War II wasn't completely over yet. And so she truly sort of lived through women's lib and and sort of all the, the challenges that especially women face in the 60s, 70s, 80s. I always say, like, my mom was born just like a couple years too early because she missed the Beatles and really hung on to like Barry Manilow. Shout out Barry Manilow and Barbara Streisand. We love them. But I'm like, Ma, like, did you go to like uh, Woodstock? And she's like, I was 30. Like, am I going to be in the mud? So dirty. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, basically, the story is my father and my mom had sort of like this, they were acquaintances, someone that you would see every couple twice a year and you'd meet for lunch and say, we should do this more, but we never do. And he was in his early sixties and had grown up kids and a wife and invited my mom over one night and they, they slept together. He was apparently separated, but Oh, the good old separated story. It was a quick separation. (laughs) Just that night they were separated. Right. It seems as though as soon as she got pregnant, he was suddenly back with his wife. I'm glad they worked things out. Um, Love really can prosper. (laughs) And so there she was at 42, and she wanted to always have a child, but assumed that maybe it wouldn't be in her future. Yeah, I mean, 42. Yeah. And this is like the 80s. Like, I don't know how many people were doing IVF then. Did that exist then? I don't know. Probably a little bit if you had the jing. Yeah, exactly. Early days. (laughs) So she made the decision. She was going to have this child knowing full well that she was perhaps signing up for what would be a pretty challenging life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was no illusions. My father quickly sort of walked away and said, I'll have nothing to do with this. And as I said... Growing up, it seemed as though, to me, my friends and their family were part of a closed corporation and that it was basically the parents were upper management and the kids were employees and sort of orders would get barked down from upper management. And my mom and I were like a startup, you know, and just sort of figuring out our way. And and I say, like, we were partners in many ways. She was certainly the mom and took care of me and protected me, but 
I became in an odd way, like the man in her life because she couldn't shield me from much. We yeah. had to, you know, have an agreement, a partnership because it, it, you know, we faced a lot of challenge. Yeah. I mean, this is how you survived together, but I couldn't help think you do write in the book about how you sort of were the man. So it could be even like the man of the house, but also it's like in this partnership. And I do think, especially a son to a mother, that puts an interesting load hmm. on a young man because they, they're protective of their moms. They want their moms to be okay. They feel responsible for their moms. I do think it's a lot. Hmm. And even if it's unintentional, you don't see the dynamic the same in the other directions, quite like a son and a mother, where it's like, I would imagine even as an adult, you had to, I mean, you talk, actually talk about things about making sure your mom's okay. Yeah. So it's an interesting thing because it's it's beautiful that you can survive together, but then there's something to be said for like not having to worry about your parents. Right. I, if, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, there's there's so many different dynamics that go on with kids and their parents. And if you have both, and mm. if maybe you have more of a, a uh, in quotes, normal sort of upbringing where you're not, you know, maybe acting when you're 11 years old. And there's advantages and disadvantages to all of it. Absolutely. But, you know, I remember I, I talk about in the book, I asked my mom, you know, my mom had to take my dad to court when I was nine months old. And sort of basically he gave us a, a bit of money and just walked away forever. And she always, I always said to her, what was that like? You know, here was this guy who for many years you just thought was like kind of this wonderful mentor and to become so quickly this disappointing person. Mm. And she always says, well, he looked at you because you were at the courthouse with me at nine months old and he kind of like touched his heart and walked away. Now, I don't know. I don't think my mom is purposely lying to me. I just think like, parents have a tendency to put sort of a halo of decency around life for their kids, especially at a young age. But the world is unjust. Yeah. And we learn that either really early on or, or, or in our 20s and 30s. And so I think at a young age, I just, because I did have a lot of love and I, I did have like the really deep, important things that I think are fundamental to raising a child with like self-worth and feelings of security. But I did have this awareness of like, the pecs aren't normal, life is not fair. And at every turn, whether it was not having a dad or being very overweight or being like the musical theater kid at 12 when I should have been playing t-ball, I was like, oh, the pecs are different. Mm -hmm. And like the world, I'm, I'm always going to be the, the odd man out. And it, it took a long time to make my peace with that. Do you think standing here as an adult who's seen a lot of different shades and, and areas of life that you realize that's all a game anyway, and that really every house and every person has their own version of feeling like, oh, we're different. Yours was yeah. more obvious. Sure. But, you know, I feel like we get this weird picture of, you know, for me it was uh, leave it to beaver, right? Like, yeah. I just want to leave it to beaver. But uh, my mom trained dolphins in a circus when I was two. And cool. my dad was, you know, he passed away when I was five. Like, mm. all I wanted was leave it to beaver. But the magic that comes out of, like you're saying, some of the, the things that are challenging, mm. you can't replicate. But then you, if you live long enough, you go, oh, everyone has this, I feel like sometimes, oh, I'm different. Oh, I don't fit in is part of the human experience. And we just think well, that we're only one of the people going through it, mm. but that people maybe 
on any level, whether they have two parents or not. Maybe it's a kid who's like, I don't fit in with my family. Who knows? Right. As I've gotten older, I sort of go, I think a lot of people experience that. It's just not as obvious. I think so too. I think it's a, it's an unavoidable sort of part of just growing as a human being mm-hmm. and facing sort of the trials and tribulations of existence and evolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to your point, yeah, I think we all experience it in different ways. You know, I, I, I sort of talk about this in the book, but, you know, I never knew my grandfather, but from what my mom has told me, he was a guy who liked to eat a lot, drink a lot, smoke 10 cigars a day, and basically like drop dead at 50. And and I was like, uh, that sounds like, like, you know, a lot of people would hear that and be like, yikes. I'm like, that sounds awesome. Like, not the dying part, but everything else, like, I, I, I'm all in. And, you know, he then had my mom and she too had her struggles with overindulgence and food and, and whatnot. And and then she had me. And so there were like three generations of people who were struggling with overdoing it and sort of the trauma that comes with that. And and who even knows, you know, Jewish people, especially in the Northeast of like the 20s, 30s and 40s, there was so much trauma going on anyway that there was like this epigenetic, like transgenerational sort of passing on of that trauma. And so my mom corrected to the best of her ability what her dad did to her and thus gave it to gave me a really good opportunity to to do even more correction and now i look at my son who's 3 years old and my wife is fantastic and pretty healthy i mean after 10 years she hasn't proven to be a total kook yet and except for the part of loving me <laughs> and and i look at this kid of mine and i go wow you have a chance at only being reasonably dysfunctional, like, like a healthy no, that's amount like a dream of dysfunction. For a parent. And that's like, that's, I, that's a generation. That's a dream. I always tell Laird, I can't wait till these girls get a little older and we, and they t- let us know how badly we've screwed it up. Right. You know, like, so, uh, you know, to that, to that point, and, and you were singing Paige's praises earlier, just about how calm she is and navigates that. And also there's some, and you know, that's what partnerships are also for. Mm. We're learning not only from our experience, our children, but our partners are going like, hey, I'll just, I'll take the over right now. Just chill out. And you're like, oh yeah, yeah. Good idea. You know, on, on certain things, yes. you know, just watching them. But my youngest daughter said the other day, like, oh, dad is just like, oh, he's crowding me. And like on, you know, sort of, you know, wants me to hug me and like wants to know where I am and like what's going on. And I said, you know, what's funny, Brody, I go, the only thing is, is that we have, we're only going to be seen as, as one of two ways. We're either going to be on top of you or we're going to be neglecting you. Right. And parents just have to decide what they can deal with. So when you come back and go, you know, I can live with that. Because <laughs> right. there's no middle. Like, you know, you did a great balance of like moving in when I needed you to and giving me space. No kid's ever going to say that to their parents. Yes. And so I think as a parent, you start to realize it's going to be something. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what propels us in life. Maybe that's what, that's our schooling. Mm. Like it's like an injury. I always say I learn everything and I make all my adjustments through being physically injured as far as my physical practice. Sure. If I always felt great, I wouldn't do anything different. So I think the pain is, it's just built in to to having to do it. So I I was curious how, you know, you were talking about, I feel like it was eight years old. Were you doing stand-up at eight? Is this right? About eight or nine, Right. Where do you get the balls to do, or, you know, the chutzpah to, (laughs) to be like, yes, I can do it? Was that a, because it's interesting, you talk all through the book about the, the sort of tough relationships between performing 
and and like doing it well and then it being hard for you mm-hmm. like i i really appreciated that but where do you get that inner courage to be you know between eight and nine oh i can go and do that i think my mom was such an example because she as i said had dealt with issues with food and weight stuff throughout most of her life and like i talk about and i fear my fear that people could take away from the book or that I think would be the wrong way, or at least it would be unfortunate if they looked at, at the part of me talking about my weight in the book. Mm. I, I speak in a hyperbolic way where A, I sort of make fun of myself. And also I want to be honest in that for me, weight was a real issue. And it was also at a time where like we didn't have body positivity. Right. We didn't have what's so pre- you know present today and wonderful and necessary. So I try to paint in in a somewhat brutal picture of like what was going on in my head during that time. And I don't want it to negate anything of like people feeling utterly comfortable in their own skin today. It just, I faced a certain challenge when I made that change. But so I think my mom dealing with that for herself, and then also being this self-made, you know, female business person, she needed to take over rooms. And like I say about comedy, like you can be a lot of things. You can be too nice. You can be too emotional, but no one's ever too funny. No one's like, oh, that Rick, I I love him, but he makes me laugh too much. Like it's a magic trick and it's visceral. Like laughter and crying are involuntary. And that's why when people can really make you laugh, it feels almost like a magic trick. You're Mm. like, do it again. So I watched my mom use it as her superpower forever. And she'd walk into a room and say like, everyone look over here because like the entertainment has arrived. So I talk about this one moment in particular when I was at like a Jewish holiday dinner at eight years old and I fire out this joke that my mom had just told like, you know, a couple of weeks earlier. And there's a moment, a lull in the conversation as everyone's looking at me trying to process what just happened with this eight-year-old kid telling a joke about breast enlargement. It's a good joke. <laughs> um, and I was like, in that moment, anything could have happened. Like, had they not laughed, like I could be like an accountant in Boca right now or like a Bitcoin miner in Norway. Like so much could have happened but they laughed, like they laughed their asses off. And immediately I felt like the boy king. I said, oh, this is a value. This is a currency mm. and I can summon it at eight, which is very rare. There's there's very little adult currency that you can sort of grab onto at such a young age or social currency. So that's why I started acting and sort of throwing myself full force into this thing. and. I, I sort of had sort of a, a bit of natural talent for it, which I think was lucky, but I also was incredibly ambitious and I was this only child and, and kind of the focus was on me. So my mom said, if this is what you want to do and it gives you confidence, I'll, I'll, I'll help support you. And that led to me reading an actor's magazine one day when I was nine years old. I don't know how I got it finding my first agent and then looking at me and saying, I can get you five minutes of stand-up time if you're willing to get up and put an act together at a local New York comedy club. And is this like at night? They have to like usher you in in the back, right? Yeah, like is this a whole thing? me in so that I wouldn't, they wouldn't lose their <laughs> liquor license. Yeah. And this was like three times a week. Like, and literally I'd get home from elementary school <laughs> and my mom would be like, you got to take a nap. 
And I'd be like, why? She's like, because we're going to be out till 11 tonight. So like, take a nap now so you're not completely crushed for school tomorrow. Right. And, Can you yeah. give me an example of like a joke a nine-year-old will tell you? Would you be like, oh, so I was on the playground? And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'd make fun of my mom. I'd make fun of kids <laughs> at school. I remember I liked this one. I felt very proud of this one joke that's not good. Um, but I think coming out of a nine-year-old, it helps. In the Northeast, we have, I don't know if you're familiar with Entenmann's. Of course. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I feel like it's made its I even way. know what Dairy Barn is. Do you know what that is? It's a no. drive through place that had Entenmann's and mm. like, you know, the chocolate covered donuts, the powdered donuts. Anyway. Oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, it was great. It's my kind of <laughs> you place. You don't have to get out of your car. <laughs> even better. Who wants to be with people? Um, and so there was, Entenmann's was like kind of this grocery store baked good stuff. And I would always say... At school, I'm like, at school, I major in entomology, the study of entomates. And like coming out of this chubby nine-year-old, they were like, that's a good joke. So that became my like shtick. And I wound up doing it on Conan O'Brien and Rosie O'Donnell. And it became, it kind of became my calling card. You know, it's hard to read where you talk about, you know, agents saying, oh, you were too big for commercials. Right. And and that you went to the Jewish Community Center. And that was where they sort of really first napalmed you. (laughs) Yeah. Again, I just think that, you know, this is where they, they sort of called you a name and that it's kind of was the, I, it's felt like it was one of the first times that it was sort of, oh, this is wounded. Yeah. yeah. People have those moments. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a giant 320 pound NFL player. Yeah. And he talked about being spanked, whipped for the first time at five by his dad. And he's like, I felt really betrayed. Hmm. And I was like, oh. It's like we were, everything was good. We were having fun. It was fine. And then like, wait, what's happening? And he said it was a really, had an intense impact on him. Yeah. And I thought it was actually a really beautiful way of explaining it. He's like, I felt betrayed. It felt like for me that moment where they, you know, referred to you um, based on your weight. Yeah. You know, what do you do with that? Because people get that. It's like, I, I mean, me, I was really tall. Mm. I mean, you know, whatever. Daddy long legs, g- jolly green giant, whatever. Did you get, get teased a lot? Uh, tons. But really? it's, I don't know if it's different. Mm. And also, I, this is how I looked at it. I had a very tall mother. But I looked at it like, oh my gosh, everyone is tripping out about how tall I am. I'm not tripping out how tall I am. They're tripping out about how tall I am. I mean, I was six feet at 12 or whatever, right? Mm. So I think I always had space from it. Like I made it like their experience Mm. more, but nobody likes walking around when you're already uncomfortable. I was, you know, you're going through puberty, you're really uncomfortable everywhere you go. People are staring at you or say things really smart. Like you're really tall. It's like, yeah, okay, thanks. So I I managed it. I did try to be less than. Mm. I did for sure. Sure. That's how I tried to be a little smaller. Yeah, Yeah, just be less than. Um, I'm wondering though, when you go to the place, also like the Jewish community center is probably supposed to be a safe place. Yeah, it's, but it's just a lot of young Jewish shitheads. <laughs> I was like, guys, uh, we, you know, we got a band together. It's only 60 years ago. They were rounding us up. Like, Come on. I Yeah, it was. But again, it was that moment where I said, oh, it's going to be hard looking like this. And I'd always known we were different, but I had this social currency. I had this ability to win your favor. Yeah. But to a fellow 10-year-old, they were like, I'm not impressed with you. Like, I'm going to make this snap judgment about the way you look. Yeah. And I knew from that moment on, I was like, oh, I've got my work cut out for me. So you, you talk a lot about, you know, the relationship with food, the joy of food. This is where sort of a lot of this experience was or, or the, you know, maybe looking for the feeling. 
mm. from food. It became other things later. But and when I ask this, it's more I'm trying to really understand what does it bring you? And is that is that also sort of an isolated experience? Like you, I mean, you could share it with friends, I guess. But I think sometimes when people, when you're talking about like, oh, the weight, you know, do you are you sort of feeling like no one is really understanding what's going on? And do you think it's so the food becomes what your the friend or the you know the the place of of good feelings? What is the food? I think food for us is for most people is their first foray into using something to numb whatever's going on, whether we know it or not. Yeah. It certainly is uh, societal. It's, it's used as this reward system. And even more so, at a young age, I just, whether I knew it or not, I had this propensity or this proclivity for these overwhelming feelings. And especially in my kind of household where there was a lot of financial insecurity, single mom, just feeling like I was in this position. And to your point, right? Like it's from the park bench to the to Park Avenue. Yeah. It's from the state pen to Penn State. You know, like yeah. I don't know if I would have had I been born to some like rich, typical family, the sort of uh the the sack of dysfunction that I would have been handed from that scenario. I can only speak to my experience, but I I just knew that food was this thing that offered me some relief. I heard it said once in a 12-step meeting, mm. I wasn't trying to kill myself. I was trying to kill the part of me that wouldn't let me live. You know, the the that voice that woke up a few minutes before I did every morning that told me all the ways I wasn't enough. And for me, I, I just... I had those feelings from as far back as I can remember, and the only thing that offered me any relief was food. And I, I was not cognizant of it. And I, I obviously we mirror the way, you know, what our parents offer us. And so seeing my mom struggles with it, I'm sure, I don't know if she presented the healthiest uh, relationship with food to me, but you know, what can you do? She was doing the best she could. And, yeah. and so then it, it was for me to figure it out. So yeah, it was, uh, it was certainly sort of this um, anesthesia and mm. it allowed me some relief, but it, it, like anything like that, it had such quick diminishing returns. You know, if you get really sick and you have to take like um, something that's uh, exogenous, like um, prednisone, right? You, and you have to take steroids. They say like, you must do it for a very brief run because the moment your body sees this in an artificial form, it's gonna stop making it naturally. Right. And similarly, as soon as my body saw relief, my mind saw relief in this outside thing, they were like, oh, I'm not gonna even try to give you any healthy defense mechanisms or coping mechanisms. Like my evolution as a, as a, my emotional evolution kind of stalled around the time I started eating and using in excess. I've never actually heard that part of it explained that way. And uh, it makes a lot of sense because it's like, what else, what other things would motivate us to get out of the suffering? Mm. It's like, okay, well, I can just eat a donut or whatever. It's like, sure. yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great point with Max. I'm curious, like, do you, cause it's, I have, listen, threats and bribes, right? I have three daughters. It's like, oh, we're going to potty train, you know, an M&M for, you know, number one and two M&Ms for number two, like, you know, on the toilet with yeah. Max, are you, is there a different practice um, that you've put in place 
Because it is. It's like dessert's fun. You know, eat your vegetables, then you get your dessert. It's yeah. so normal. Um, and we don't even always realize. Have Has that played out differently for you as a father? I certainly try to, you know, uh, just have a very normal sort of approach to food or whatever whatever that looks like. Yeah. You know, when growing up with my mom, I was going to like Weight Watchers meetings with her. <laughs> and I was like, Jesus, like you ladies like to talk about food a lot. Well, I'm like on my Game Boy in the back. She had no one to watch me. And so, but to my son, hopefully because my wife's side of the family, they're, they've all sort of have a quasi-normal relationship with food. I just try to make it not a thing, but also to learn like to not give him bad habits, such as the thing that I grew up with, which was clean your plate, right? Like push past being full because, you know, cause what the, the, the famine is coming, the tornado, like yeah. it's, I could appreciate that to maybe a hundred years ago, but it's all right. Like God willing, we're going to be able to go and get some more food. <laughs> like, No, it's interesting too. When you watch what's beautiful about little kids is they for, I don't know, till they're like two or three only eat until they're full. Right. They'll even have beautiful like mac and cheese still sitting on their plate. And they were like, oh, no, it's done. I've eaten. And I'm thinking if that was any other, like that was me and you put mac and cheese on my plate, I'm going to kill the whole thing. Till I'm sick. But they know. They yeah. already know. Yeah. But it is hard when, like, for example, when he gets older and it's like, oh, um, yay, out for school. Let's get ice cream. It's like school. I mean, I think it was explained to me like this. And this is how I we do it, which is we model hey, this is how we eat 80% of the time. Like we're eating like this in this house. We don't necessarily make special meals for the girls. However, when they're little, little, we're not going to have, you know, ask you to eat the kale salad. Like sure. we get it. You know, what is it? What is watercress? I mean, really, you're going to give it to them? No, okay. they're not going to do that. But the other side of it is not to make anything taboo. Mm. So we eat a certain way, but with my girls and What's interesting is they, I've seen it already two times. We'll see how the third one goes, is they do kind of go back to the habits. So it's a, it's an interesting thing of we're not going to make it a thing. It, it won't be a reward. But also, you know what? You want to eat a chip? You want to have a Cheeto? You want to eat some weird fast food? Knock yourself out. Yes. Because I, I think making anything forbidden is, is usually not the way to go. I think you're you're right on. And I the one thing I will say that I do is sometimes if I'm like putting my son in his pajamas or getting him ready for school and I'll look at his like his tummy and his chest for a moment and I'll be like, "Oh, it's so perfect. Like don't mess this up." Like cuz I know, I know what it, the effects being 100 pounds overweight have and that you know no matter how good of shape you get in, there's always going to be sort of like those that that bit of scar from, you know, where you were and stretched out skin and mm. stretch marks. And, and all of that now is something that I can own and feel comfortable with. But there is a small part of me that goes like, I want you to have trial and tribulation. I want you to have to like face difficult things and walk through it and be a better man for it. But not everything. Right. You know? And I'm fascinated to hear about how you and Laird sort of approach because we want to give our kids this great life and, and we don't want them to necessarily have all the challenge that we had. And yet you're always walking that line, right? Of like, how do I now make this kid? Tough. Yeah, it's hard. Armor right? up. We call it, how do you get them to arm? Because you need a certain amount of armor in life. And it is interesting. It's a very interesting time you're, you know, that your son is growing up in, which is 
there was helicopter parents and now there's snowplow parents where they What's just that? try snowplow is they just try to take everything hard out of the way before it's helicopter like where are they and then when uh, now we have snowplow then we don't want to have any tension here's what i know hmm. um when it comes to that kind of thing we you will you will most likely you will give max more than you got and you'll start thinking well he has a good education and his mom and i love each other and we're kind to each other and that's going to take care of it right that's what we're going to he lives in a clean safe environment we're not beating him right because we sort of have a checklist of the what sort of we wanted what we don't realize is they will this world this life will give them um challenges that will take you a second to understand mm. for example expectation max will grow up with a different expectation of, of being successful or what are you going to do are you going to be funny like your dad are you going to be a performer right. and nobody ever said that to you because you you and your mom were just making it i always said we joke in our house if you were sober and paid your rent you were that's pretty good Crushing. Larry and I, that was our expectation <laughs> yay our daughters have a different so even though we're not selling them that and we've provided this great environment for them or you know a healthy a decent one the outside world is at putting a different message on them and so and also their destiny is not your destiny mm. like i see it and i go these girls have it so easy and yeah because they're not living the life i lived and so often we put that template our template on top of them instead of realizing it's it's their own thing. So what I would say is having realistic conversations not and just like your son's going to go through hard times. Right. And you're going to not try to shield him from every hard time and you'll listen. That was really important lesson for me as a parent when your kids like this person was mean to me and this and that. And it's not making excuses or anything just being like I'm sorry that must be hard. Yes. Because what they're also learning is how to express their feelings. The fact that Max will tell you that's the magic. You just want him to be able to say what he's going through. Right. He'll, he'll he'll find the way to work it out. But it's brutal. It's brutal to watch and we think if we check certain boxes our kids will get to avoid certain pain and they won't. It's amazing how to your point giving people and not only your kids but everyone like the dignity of their own experience. The Which, dignity of their own ass whooping, oh, too, on top of it. It's, it's so true. And as the parent, because you're not objective, it gets easier. Like if, you know, like you practice it a little more because it's somehow some kind of faith about, oh, this is how life is. Mm. Oh, and imagine your son is, is three. He's precious. Yeah. Like you wouldn't, you can never, you never want anything, you know, and it'll be there. And, and if you guys are there to listen that's really powerful. Yeah, it seems I think you're I think you're right on. And also like the power of I try to give I, I in general I feel like if you're doing some good growing you're just talking less every year you're alive. But especially like how much unsolicited advice I gave throughout my whole life to everyone because it's also a, a way in which for me to feel like I can control the world, right? Like self-will run right. As long as you act the way I think you should, we won't have no problems. Like everything will work out fine and drive the way I think and, you know, serve me the way I think. And, you know, my wife has done such a good job of just like getting me to shut up. And I'm, I'm fascinated with people like, like my father-in-law is a, was a professional athlete and feel like weird, you know, 
this kismic sort of universe put him in my life as a great role model for me later in life. And, yeah. and we talked about these sort of natural alphas like Laird and whatnot, like this ability in which to just like present this energy, this calming energy without having to like display it or perform it or over talk it. Mm -hmm. And it's a temptation because I, lo I love to talk. <laughs> well, it's funny. It, it makes me think, and I'm, I'm going to jump ahead, but there's a, there's some things that I feel are really important to talk about from your book is this reminds me now of where you must be right in this moment mm. because you talk about, and I'm spoiler alert, you go through this whole process, you achieve success as an actor, then you achieve success and financial success, you know, using social media, Yes. you know, an early adopter and who has a skill set that it works beautifully. And then you readdress going back into acting and even going to acting classes mm. after as an adult, but that what's so beautiful is how you've come around to, okay, I'm going to do this because I want to. And the stillness within that, that you seem to have, you know, come to yes. with, with doing it because you want to and not because of the outcome, which in your job, especially is hard because the yeah. outcome is you got the gig, you didn't get the gig you're still in it, you know, your has been, your comeback, it's all that bullshit label stuff that everybody puts on all these, you know, kind of unsustainable things. Oh yeah. So I, it's interesting because you say that about your father-in-law, but I feel like you're getting versions of that stillness showing up in, in your own world. Oh, it, it, it's such a, it's such a true thing for me that I, I was sort of forced, anything that I thought was my identity had, I had to go through an ego death. Um, all the things that I thought defined me. I remember once I was talking to a guy I've known in sobriety for a long time, and I was just like going through just yet again, and especially in my business, it's easy to like every couple, you know, a couple times a year, and that's a good year of just being like, it's all over. <laughs> like, this is the last one. It's the last time I'm gonna be rejected. It's the last time I'm gonna take a no. I can't take this anymore. And I remember saying to him like, you know, I'm really embarrassed. And he said, why? I said, I just, I, I feel humiliated. Like, I feel like I am this guy and I was a successful actor for so long. And now you all see me struggling and I hate it. And he said, you know, Josh, first, I don't think about you that much. <laughs> but when I do think about you, a very small percentage of that is Josh Peck, the actor. Like about 90% of it is you as a human. Like. I like my friend Josh, he's a respectable guy. Like he'd probably pick me up from the airport if I asked nicely, like the important things. And that's what I think of you. And if there are people in your life where the majority of that, that ratio is thinking of you as an actor, they better either work for you or maybe you don't need them in your life. Yeah. And I found that to be incredibly true. So when I, you know, I had all this success till I was like 24 years old in acting traditionally. And then I also had sort of burnt out on being so sort of at the mercy of the gatekeepers of producers yeah. and executives and all mm -hmm. these people who, who would make decisions for my life that I really had no power over. So when I found social media, it was fabulous and it was lucrative, but all of a sudden five years into it, I'm like, oh, no one's calling anymore. And I really did love acting, but suddenly I'm in this position where maybe that part of me is getting, is, is going to become forgotten. 
So it was facing all these different things to inevitably or eventually, to your point, get to that place of like, what do I really want if it's not my identity, if it's not important to me what you think of me? If I'm alone and I'm looking at myself, like, what's my capital T truth? And it was that, you know, I enjoy acting. It's something I've done since I was a kid. I fell in love with it when I was 10 years old, not thinking about money. And if I can still do it, I'll do it. And that was when I could, was one of the first times I was able to walk into an audition, into an opportunity more free than I'd ever been. And just so I, I want to uh, promote, so you have the whackness and mm. uh, you have a show on Disney streaming, right? Well, tell me, am I, am I getting this right? I had um, recently, I'm on a show now on Hulu called How I Met Your Father. Yes. And I have a new um uh, and I, I did a show last year on Disney Plus called Turner and Hooch. Right. So you, yeah. I mean, you're, I mean, this is the thing is it's so it's these old, you know, all of the old things about, well, when you let it go and you pay attention to what you, you know, what you're doing and not worry about the outcome. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're having this next wave of opportunity Yes. that, um, you know, I, it's sort of like dating too. Sometimes I think like desperation just never smells good. And they can smell it they on you, right? They smell it. Oh, I mean, it's the worst. I mean, I think about that. I'm always like, even me, I've always think about this, even in business. I'm like, check yourself. Like, because yeah. you can think that you're putting on a brave face or no one knows, but people, they can smell it. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it never, it never works. So you book Josh and Drake, you go through from, you know, what is it? 16 to 19 doing yeah. this. You, you do some films, you do Snow Day. You had done the Amanda show prior to that. You're an adult. You lose the weight. Let's talk about that. You make it very simple. You're like, I know you don't want to hear it, but it's like eat a little less and exercise a little more. For somebody who's listening to this and maybe they're going like, I've got stuff to tackle. What, how do you start on both sides? How do you start? Well, it's funny. This was the early 2000s. So I did, um, early keto, also known as the Atkins diet. Poor Dr. Atkins, right? Was he not like on the keto? Keto is the Atkins Pretty diet. Pretty much, And yeah. they basically like, they-, they He made died him, and they rebranded. And they made him evil. <laughs> and they were like, eating bacon, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah, fat's gonna kill you, but you know. Mm -hmm. Right, he mm -hmm. knew. Yeah. Um, shout out Dr. Atkins, <laughs> RIP. Um, but what I see in the book specifically, and that was such a hard chapter to write, when I first started, decided to start losing weight. And my friend, Ryan Holiday, who helped advise on the book, and he said, this is the turning point of your life. This is the most important chapter. And you must write it so that a 16-year-old version of yourself would maybe cry reading it. So I had to talk about how I was so sick and tired of being sick and tired and that I tried everything. I'd done it my way and it got me incredibly just overweight and unhappy. And I say that to the people who are reading the book, or if you are at that place, and it, it harkens back to what we were talking about before, like if you're at that place where you're utterly over it and just feel hopeless and you can't take it anymore, while I, I have empathy for that because I know how painful that can be, I almost want to say good because I don't know where change comes from unless you're thoroughly uncomfortable. And at least that's what I can, I can speak for myself. Like pain has been the great motivator of my life. So if you're over it, great. Now what? And to your point, like I would, I would start these crash diets and at 295 pounds, I'd lose 10 pounds in three days. 
and it'd be awesome. Because the, bo- the body wants to let go of it. That's it does, the other thing. Right? So there's this thing where if we do have an excess of weight, we will get a big beginning. But yeah. The, and then sometimes obviously plateaus and things like that. So you would go ahead and you'd lose 10 pounds quick, but then what? And it just wasn't sustainable to be that rigid. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, and inevitably I would just, you know, wind up, giving up on Wednesday and eating poorly till the next Monday. And it would just be Groundhog's Day. And I remember at 17, my mom and I went to New York to spend the summer there. And we had had these long conversations in the car. And I finally was starting to sort of face the stuff with my dad and letting go of some inner emotional anger, which obviously I had been medicating with food and everything else. So in sort of facing that allowed me to say, okay, well, what's this other thing? And I knew that at 17, I was sort of crossing this invisible boundary of like, I had already felt like I'd missed out on some of the teenage experience Mm -hmm. just from feeling too insecure to participate. And I'm like, am I going to miss my, you know, college years or whatever that version is for a child actor or my early 20s because I don't feel confident enough to go to the party or to have a girlfriend and... And so I remember we went to New York and I would just walk the streets of the city. It was the only thing that sort of didn't hurt exercise-wise. And I slowly started eating better, but if I messed up and I had a dessert or something, I didn't allow it to just make me tailspin. I would live to fight another day. And I did that pretty consistently for two years. And as you said, if I plateaued, I would sort of dial it in again. And by the time I was about, just before I turned 19, I went from like 300 to about 180 pounds. That's incredible. Yeah. And what about the working out where you're just like, oh, worse, like. So painful. I mean, and also it's just like the beginning point. Yeah. Those first, you know, Laird has a saying, there's only one first day. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, That's great. you know, just for people to realize it's one first day. And then how did you get the information to, to sort of know what to do? Or do you just kind of wing it and, 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 and move around more? I was not like. I I was pretty mobile even when I was heavier. Like I liked being active. My best friend Len and I would play hockey every day when he got home from school and I would get home from work. And, you know, we were like, I enjoyed being active, but I just knew I was limited. I remember I went to tennis camp when I was 12 years old. Oh. Did you go? No. We couldn't afford, like I didn't have access to I, tennis camp. I don't know how I did. You must have I, done through the Jewish Community Center. Shout out. No, you were already back in LA by then, sorry. <laughs> I was 12 and I, it's such a Northeast Did you hit it hard? Thing. I, was, I literally went for five days. I was awful. But I remember like sprinting up and down the court at like, you know, 190, 5'4", 190 goals. I would like, I literally would have to lay on the court like this and just like, I was like, I'm going to throw up. It's just a question of when. Yeah. And like- so I knew, I was like, oh, this is bad. Like I've painted myself into a real corner here. So when I first started to work out, it was like, I, God bless my first trainer who literally said, we're going to do a push-up," And I was like, bet, love the idea of that. Um, not sure it's possible. He's like, no, it's possible. You're going to do it from your knees. And I was like, still hard. And he was like, I'm going to wrap a towel around your waist and I'm going to sort of offset some of the weight I'll pull up with you as you push up on your arms. And we're gonna do it 10 times. And then one day you're not gonna need the towel and then one day you won't be on your your knees doing it. And that was sort of how I slowly, and that's how I approach pull-ups and push-ups and sit-ups. And 
And eventually, and it wasn't until I did Red Dawn years later where I really got ground um, in by like true fitness guys to where I started to have a good- You mean the Navy SEALs? Some real dudes. Some <laughs> Wait, real guys. So let's just, let's let's really put the framework around okay. that. Red Dawn, you were playing Chris Hemsworth's brother. Who made that choice, right? <laughs> I mean, God, that seemed a little, it's a little far-fetched. I was, but I- I, I Adopted saw, brother. Yeah, <laughs> no, but, yeah, we have different fathers. Yeah, um, must have. In the story. And the hottest <laughs> girlfriend ever. Oh my God, I was really in love with her Beautiful. too. Shout out Isabel Lucas. Yeah. Sorry, I was so weird. She's a beauty. <laughs> I love you. I have, to, I have to leave now. I literally was like, she played my girlfriend in the movie and I think we we said eight words to each other because I, I refused to talk to her because I was too, I was like, what am I going to say? The moment I open my mouth, it's all downhill. Oh yeah. With your, with your Josh Peck version of being Chris Hemsworth. Oh God. It's so good. Well, I got cast in this movie. It's I, so good. I, I thought, I literally thought I was like, I had arrived. I had done this movie, The Wackness, and I got all this incredible sort of uh, fanfare oh, from- was this the Sundance one? Yes. Yes, got it. And I'm like 23, and I'm thin, I'm in better shape, and I've now like been been given this this vehicle. I'm like, let's go. I'm ready to be Ryan Reynolds. It's about time. Finally, like the world is sort of adapting to what I always knew was true. Like, I am a movie star. <laughs> So first they say, we'd like you to work out with these Navy SEALs and get in shape for the movie. Now, God bless these guys who were, Dave and Logan, shout out, who were like so wonderfully supportive and like just knew my limitations and, but were also impressed that I was like willing to humiliate myself. Yeah. And we basically, four, six days a week, I'll never forget the sixth workout was on a Saturday and Dave the Navy SEAL said, we're going to have a little fun with this workout. I'm like, I feel like our definition of fun is different. <laughs> and he's like, you see this gigantic like, Mack tru truck tire that would go on like a farm vehicle? I was like, uh-huh. He's like, we're going to attach a chain to it and we'll put it on a harness and we'll just drag it for a mile. <laughs> I was like, cool. Like, old school mile? Or like, and... And so I start really working out and I do get in good shape, but I was so damn insecure still. And I was so like, I, I didn't know what it meant to be a real man, to be confident, to have all the things that I wanted to present. Cause I was like this scared little boy in this new body, yeah. like in theory, living the thing that I'd always thought I'd wanted. Mm. That's so, so yeah. yeah, that's right. An exaggerated thing of like, well, here I am. Here it is. Yeah, I got it. Mm. And I and all of a sudden, like whether, but I could tell in the workouts, I'm like, oh, like this certainly isn't coming to me as as easily as Chris Hemsworth. Like these natural sort of Adonis men that were in the movie as well. And so every day on set, instead of embracing you know, my superpowers, be it the comedy or just like the humility that I'd learned, I started pr to present a picture of what I thought they wanted, which was this tough, swaggered out, like, you know, Chris Hemsworth wannabe. And it was, it's so, I think someone, I think one of the reviewers said that they thought like that I was special needs. It was that bad. <laughs> like they were like, there's maybe there's a side of Josh Peck that he's never told us. <laughs> It was so bad. And the worst part is I knew it. It was like, I, I'm, I talk about it in the book is mm -hmm. 
it was like being a pyromaniac hanging outside of a lighter shop. Like I knew something bad was going to happen. I just didn't know when. And so for the four months we're filming it, I'm like, I'm, I'm blowing this. I knew it. And, and how come you couldn't just pull back on it? Like just, I don't know. You were in and that was it. I didn't know there was another way. Mm. I thought to the best of my ability, I was muscling it. I just felt like if I could just exude all my force on this thing and wish it into being. And I talk about in the book, like the duality of ego, right? Yeah. That ego had gotten me to this point and told me when I was 300 pounds, like you're a movie star, you're, you're going to be attractive. You're, you know, you deserve. And, and in many ways it like helped get me through those moments where it was like, if I'd faced the realities of where I was at that point, I might've said, I might've totally given up. Yeah. But as soon as I'd gotten there, that same ego turned on me and was forcing me to be this BS version of myself that I would never live up to and was not attractive and wasn't cool or confident, just was like sweaty and trying too hard. <laughs> and it was so bad. I know with Chris Hemsworth, like most of all people, it's like... Dude, and so nice. Oh, of like, course. That's the worst part. Like... <laughs> Gorgeous, perfect, <laughs> about to go do Thor, like literally a god, and also like, like, how are you, mate? Like, I'm like, I'm great, Chris. Yeah. Like, I'm better now that you're looking at me, but I don't have high hopes for my performance in this. He was just so. He has a different journey, let's just say. Totally. Like, <laughs> and. Nobody's asking his parents, hey, how do we want to make Chris's life hard? Dude, and am I proud of my journey? Yes. Would I have traded it with Chris Hemsworth in a second? For sure. I'd give it all up. It's like, oh, it seems like he has a nice marriage, family. Three kids. Yeah, humble. Whatever. He's the whole thing. You think he's happy? Yeah, he's probably yeah, I was like, stumped. maybe. <laughs> he might be. I rem I'll give, I don't think this is talking out of school here. I'll, I remember... He had met his wife while he was, like, right after he was filmed Thor, and we became friends. This is just a testament to how cool he is. We had become friends, and so we were friendly. Like, at, oh, he still talked to you after that movie? Yeah. Okay. But then once Thor came out, we lost touch. Because, okay. you know, people get too famous. They it's change hard. your phone numbers and stuff. It's hard to stay, you know. Like, And I get that. But I just remember he was talking so lovingly about his, you know, it was his girlfriend at the time, and he's like, yeah, I think you know, I think we're probably going to tie the knot soon. And I was like, and in the back of my head, I didn't say this. I'm like, dude, you have Thor coming out. Like, <laughs> There's a lot gosh. of action you're leaving on the table. <laughs> yeah, like, it's about to be like I mean, a very exciting wanna... <laughs> time in your life. And he was so, he couldn't have cared less. He's like, I found this fabulous person and I just, you know, I want to get married and have kids. So, yeah, again. I mean... <laughs> Maybe his parents should write a book. They should. A yeah. couple, because I got the other boys too. They seem all well-adjusted, even the one who isn't famous. He yeah. has two famous brothers, but he still seems okay. They all seem awesome. No, The Mannings should do one too. They've got the two quarterbacks and then one who yeah. couldn't play, but they all seem okay. Yeah, the Mannings seem great. I know. I don't get it. Yeah, forget about it. I know. It's, it. Not, <laughs> our, it's not our deal. This podcast is brought to you by Ritual. I've personally been taking Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin since right when COVID hit. I was looking for something supportive and powerful. Someone suggested it to me and lo and behold, I got I did some research and what I love about them is, so women were kept out of research until 1993 by federal law and Ritual really knows 
how important women are. Obviously, if you're going to be selling them vitamins, they're essential. And they conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their essential for eight women 18 plus multivitamin to really assess its efficacy. So right there, I was intrigued and even more intrigued by the results. It increased vitamin D, which is what I was looking for, by levels up to 43% and omega-3 DHA, so important, levels by 41%. And that was just in 12 weeks. So they take the time and energy to figure out, hey, you know, does this work? And is it going to be good for these women? And not to mention that what they do is so smart. They they kind of hone in on nine key nutrients and they put it in two delayed release capsules per day that optimize your body's absorption. So if you're going to spend the time energy to really, you know, navigate taking supplements, everything is bioavailable. Your body can absorb it. It don't know what to do. And it's really gentle on your on your stomach. So you don't have to worry about like, oh, I have an empty stomach or after food or before food. They just take away all of those pressure points and make it as easy as possible and give you comfort in knowing also that Rituals multivitamins are vegan, non-GMO, project verified, gluten and major allergen free. They're certified B Corp and all of their ingredients are made traceable. Don't get me started on the nice little finished touch of the minty kind of aftertaste that they put in it. I mean, they've really thought about everything. So if, you've, if you're interested, if you're in need, no more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. You will get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash Gabby. If you want to start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today, that's Ritual, R-I-T-U-A-L dot com slash Gabby to get 25% off your first month. You know, I could keep you here forever, but I, I do want to, well, I want to know actually right now today, what is your moving and eating life look like? How are you sustaining it? What are you, what, what are you doing? And what do you like? I work out about six days a week and. Oh, cause there's only seven in the week. So that's good. Okay. No big deal. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not like it's, it's 35, I'm 35. So I know what, like I tore, I tore my pec doing bench press and CrossFit. It was the best shape I was ever in. Okay. But I also like got injured and was like, cool, this probably is not sustainable. Yeah. Um, and no hate on CrossFit. I just no. like, I don't. You needed to be a college gymnast to be sustained CrossFit for seven years without being broken. For sure, right? Yeah, it's it's a different deal. I admire the diversity. It is not, it is a very tough thing. And it's like, it would help to be more compact usually. Yeah. And if it's more like people who have been physically connected most of their lives. Yes. It's a hard gig. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And so I don't like to do what I, I have. This is how it works for me now. I'll do like three days of cardio, something mm-hmm. like even if it's an hour on the elliptical and I can just tune out and watch like catch up on a show. And then I'll do three days a week at this boxing gym that I love in Hollywood that I've gone to for 15 years. This guy, Justin Fortune. Mm-hmm. I like that there's one mirror and that's for shadow boxing. Nobody's like there peacocking. It's old school, like sledgehammers, you know, kettlebells, pull-up bars, and like, you know, and there's a weight rack. And I basically turn on a Tabata app on my phone and I just like, so it keeps me accountable and it's basically nine, eight minute rounds. And so what I'll do is for each round, I'll try to do two exercise exercises per round, but it's only 
a weight that I can do like sustainably for those rounds. So it's lighter weight. Yeah. But I'm keeping it going and just a lot of push-ups, pull-ups. And then what about- squats. Listen, <laughs> but people misconstrue, you know, Laird and I talk about this a lot because there's a price, ask any athlete, you're broken, you know, mm-hmm. and we're in our fifties and it's like, I have a fake knee, he has a fake hip. Like there's always a price for some repetitive motions, right? right. Laird's like, if you think about it in the old days, we ran- and then we laid around a lot and then we kind of ran. I really appreciate what you're saying because it's it's about doing a little bit all the time. Right. You know, a little bit good to go like once in a while, get the heart rate, get that up. Yeah. Just that burst for a moment. But it doesn't have to be a death every day in, that you leave in the gym. What about food? Because I would imagine food would be the bigger obstacle. Mm. If food was the friend for so long and how do you, how's that going? For you, I you know I I basically am eyeballing the caloric content of everything. Mm-hmm. So it's not macros. It's you know I try to consume much more protein than I am fats and carbohydrates. Or like you know it, I try to to allow protein to be the sort of predominant thing, and then fats, and then inevitably like carbohydrates. Yeah, but carbohydrates can be your salad. Yeah, they don't always have to be so evil. I think it's really right. important people understand like. Carbs are in a lot of things, including salad. And so it's not like you're talking about a bowl of pasta necessarily. Oh, but how good is pasta? And that's okay. How Don't often you do you eat pasta? pasta? Me? Yeah. Will you eat pasta? Absolutely. I just was on a trip. Um, I don't take many trips not other outside of work. I just, why? And yeah. I went on a trip. Uh, is there anything harder than like vacation like with your family it's like after the second day it's like okay yeah you're like why did i do this (laughs) like what are we you know you're fighting on the airport on the way home but oh my gosh but i did have pasta on there if it's if it's a good if it's good yeah and i'm i'll eat it for sure it's just not part of my everyday you know the 80 20 rule basically i live by that um and have you found that when you don't consume it um that you don't really jones for it as much certainly and i you know, it's the beauty of like, if drugs and alcohol are your thing, it's it's a blessing because you can you can just cut it out. It's clear. Food is a different animal. And mm. in a weird way, I've kind of been able since I was 19 to sort of like keep the weight off. I don't really weigh myself because I'm too obsessive, but I can just tell by how I look and from clothes, like I just sort of vacillate, you know, probably five to eight pounds, depending on where I'm at and what mm-hmm. I'm trying to do and training schedule. And somehow, you know, when I get a job, all of a sudden I'm like, wow, I'm 188 again. And when I'm not working, I'm like, wow, I'm 198 again. Mm-hmm. It like just somehow I, I feel really lucky that for me, food is like this thing where I never wake up in in the mood for a salad. But I also don't. Neither do I, by the way. I've somehow been able to manage it like a normal person like I have people that are very close to me who like weigh and measure their food and it because they're they're there's no version of normal eating for them and that's that's great I know what that is yeah. you know I had to do that with drugs and alcohol and say like I tried to drink like a normal man like I counted my drinks I love you know those certain people will say that like a lot of people would be like well you know I, I make sure like I only have like two to three drinks and I heard someone say once, like, if you're counting your drinks, you don't have a normal relationship no. with alcohol. Yeah. So I, uh, I do, I do appreciate that your first drug you try is cocaine. Yeah. That's pretty not? big. I mean, 
Well, I had smoked. One well, no, girl was involved. I mean, you know, I was really in love with that girl, and she she yeah, was doing she was cocaine. not a good girl. She wasn't trying because she offered it to you once. You said no, and then she came back at it. So I, I, I want people to read your book. So I'm not going to go too deep into it, but you have a journey through addiction, and I would, if you're open to it, I would love if you can tell that you got a, a letter from a producer, yeah, getting released from a job, and. Um, I think that the drugs and were sort of a part of this. Yes. It, because as a comedian, to get a letter from someone like yeah. this would probably be a pretty good wake-up call of sorts or part of the wake-up call. It certainly was. I mean, how long did this... This was on for four years, right? Yes. I basically, when I turned 18 and I, I was really sort of getting to like the tail end of losing all this weight, I suddenly was the same head in a different body mm. and I didn't have my medicine anymore. And so when I found drugs and alcohol, I was like, wow, this is so much more efficacious. Like it just works way better. And I took that deep breath that I'd always been searching for my whole life. And yeah. was like, oh God, if, if, if this is possible, why would you ever want to feel any other way? And I thought I presented what I'd wanted to present my whole life, which was, you know, the Chris Hemsworth version of Josh Peck, like confident and attractive and funny. And and so I basically chased that for four years, that feeling. And I didn't really take a sober breath for that entire time. And it resulted in a lot of things, be it uh, me calling the, I had a proclivity for calling the police on myself because I thought there was some sort of like incentive if you were the first to alert them. Um, there isn't, <laughs> in case you're wondering. I like, I like when the guy that flipped out on you on the road and then you call on him and the lady's like, yeah, we've been getting calls about you for yeah. like seven minutes. We've had like seven calls about you. <laughs> yeah, just, I, I mean, so many instances. You were that wild, Josh. Me either. I know, right? I, kind I'm of a like, bad boy. Actually, maybe you are more Chris Hemsworth than you really yeah. I'm trying. Vin Diesel, I don't tell know. your friends. <laughs> Put that out there. I, I, yeah, I, I, so I was sort of on this vision quest for four years, sowing my wild oats, and and I wound up getting this really sort of great opportunity in the middle of it, as things go, to be in this this comedy with Owen Wilson and Danny McBride and. Uh, it was written by Seth Rogen and produced by Judd Apatow. And if there is ever a great team for a funny Jew such as myself, that is a team you want to be on. And like to Judd's credit, besides being insanely, you know, talented and, and having so much success, one to me, one of his superpowers has been being able to recognize non-typical leading men like Seth and Jonah Hill and giving them sort of vehicles to be great. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for better or for worse, he saw something in me and gave me this opportunity. And I just was not in a place to take advantage of it. I don't think I said this in the book, but I remember one day on set, we were watching some playback on a monitor and Judd said, hey, I'm working on this other movie. This is before I totally screwed everything up. He's like, hey, I'm sort of working on this other movie right now. You should come by set. Maybe like, you know, you can like think of something funny, like we'll, we'll put you in a scene. And I was like, oh yeah, what's it called? He's like, ah, it's called Super Bad. And I was like, I'm busy. <laughs> and I'm sure that didn't affect me negatively at all. <laughs> but I, um, I basically for the next couple months was just, it wasn't like this active explosion. It was just a lot of being selfish and unreliable and showing up late and not being completely there because I wasn't completely anywhere. 
And it resulted in me getting a pretty, um, a very polite yet tough email from Judd saying, you know, you've come late a lot and it, it, it costs the production money. And like, I think you're a talented guy, but like this will never fly here or anywhere else. And I, I've, you know, said it in person, but Judd gave me an incredible opportunity. Couldn't have been a cooler guy. And I just wasn't in the place to take it. And I, you know, I had to live with that for many years, sort of like the shame of that, the frustration of squandering an opportunity. And while inevitably, you know, it, it all worked out because I had to do what I had to do to get here. It was facing moments like that or Red Dawn or all these certain, these inflection points where I felt like had I been able to take proper advantage of it, it could have resulted in something big. But I don't know how you feel. I feel like there are no bad decisions in life. It's literally, it's either the right one or you had to take the other one so you could go through the pain and the trial to get you to the next right one. It's like- I agree with that. Right? And, and I think what's beautiful for you is that you did it early. Mm. Uh, it's always hard to watch, you know, when people squander lots of opportunity, because as you get older, you start to realize opportunities are really precious. Mm. They just are. It's like having a really good friend. And when you're young, if you have opportunities, it's easy to m misconstrue that like, oh yeah, they'll be there and it's going to come again. So the fact that you, you always hope that people maybe dial that in sooner so that they can continue to express themselves more fully as they go through life. So I, I think uh, you have to, and the, all the lessons, you know, it's like when people talk about failures, um, it's the same as like maybe kind of blowing it a few times because when the door comes for you again, like it does now, you're probably very clear about like, oh yes, this is something I will take care of, mm -hmm. you know, be it show up on time, know my lines, you know, all these other things. So I, and you probably appreciate it differently. So I, I think that it's all a, a perfect story for all of us, even, but it's hard sometimes to feel that way on the times that we think we, we blew it in moments. Oh it, yeah. It's, it's, it's certainly like ego reducing. And I, and I talk about too in the book, like in the moments of the last like three or four years where, where um, this massive shift in so many good ways of getting married and having a kid and then inevitably having sort of like the second act in, in, in my traditional career it was really that ego death and it felt like my pride was in like the 10th round looking for a knockout. It was like, mm. I'll do anything to get you miserable. And, you know, I, I talk about it in the book. I heard this woman speak once and she's like, what are you willing to give up that stands between you and happiness? Because we all know our character defects to a certain extent, hopefully. Yeah. Right. We're all like, Ugh, I, I, you know, I, I have too short of a fuse. I get angry quickly or I'm too jealous or, and those are like, those we're all willing to let go of, right? Cause they're ugly and they're like, oh, you know, I, my wife gets pissed at me cause I, I get too easily frustrated. But then there are the more nuanced things that are closer, like they're literally intertwined with our, our makeup. Mm. And I remember this woman said, you know, once you get rid of like the obvious defects, what are you willing to let go that you think defines you? Is it that job you think you can't live without? or that relationship that like you think you can't live without, but actually isn't really working for you. She's like, cause it are, those are the things that you might have to give up on your road to happiness to know that you can be okay without them. And that was what I faced at 32 years old when, when I called a friend at like a total bottom and said, my life is so good. And I, 
have all the cash and prizes that come with a great life. I have this great wife, this great kid, and I'm 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 more than making a living. Like I'm doing great, mm-hmm. but there's this one thing, this gnawing, this acting thing that's killing me, and I worry that if I don't let go of it it's going to separate me from how good my life is. It's going to stand in my way of truly enjoying this. And it it was facing that. It was in the letting go of who I thought I was and the anomaly of my childhood and not letting it define me that allowed me into that place of stillness to walk forward and and do it on the right terms and not just because my ego thirsted for it. Yeah. And I think it's okay sometimes... Two, to say when you do something, it does feel good when somebody goes, hey, great job. Yeah. That's okay. It's just no, it's just where does it live and how much does it drive us? Like now I can be validated because, uh, you know, my favorite is when you get attention and opportunities and then all of a sudden they slow down. There's nothing like that kind of ass kicking where you're Mm. like, oh, nobody is calling. The phone isn't ringing. But when you look and you have real friendships and you have a real relationship with your wife and your your son looks at you because he adores and loves you because you've invested time with him. It's like that's still always going to be the the stuff. It yes. just is. It's it's the thing that we get to participate in. The rest is sort of like okay, well we'll just see how that goes. My friend Paul Gilmartin tells this story of a buddy of his was talking about you know summiting Everest, and he's talking about like the last couple feet and. And then arriving at the peak, and my friend Paul said, and when you you arrived there, did you find your father's love? <laughs> like, was it was it there at the top of Everest? <laughs> like, but you know, it's like all these things that we say, like, if only then, if only I just, you know, achieve this, then I'll find nirvana. Like yeah. that's, you know, euphoria is just like a few more steps down the road or contentment. And it's like, no, it's gotta be right here. Otherwise. Yeah, it's just in that next job. Yeah, I for know sure. it. For sure. If I can get for sure. If I can get a six episode arc on succession. A what? I'll Forget be a better. Yes. And, <laughs> I know it. And the same year, the cover of People magazine, Sexiest mm. Man Alive. Yes. You're done. It's perfect. Definitely. They can like airbrush some abs. Oh, it'd be me. amazing. Oh. I great Osprey tan for that. For the cover all day of people, long. All day long. I'll get a number three. Ryan Ryan Reynolds would be super <laughs> jealous. So Ben Kingsley, mm. he said something. You did a film with him. Yes. Uh, he's an actor's actor. And the guy's a G. Yeah. You at the end were like, hey, you have any advice? And I and he said something important for all of us. Mm. Well, he I did this movie, The Wackness. Um, I was 19 years old. Sir Ben Kingsley is is the lead of the the movie, and and I'm playing opposite him, and he's literally my like Tom Brady, you know, it, the guy I loved growing up, the one I looked up to most. And so at the end of the film, I, I remember I had a few minutes left with him, and I was like, I gotta ask him for some advice. And I remember asking him, and he kind of looked at me, cocked his head, almost to say like, really, <laughs> like you're gonna make me answer this, and and I was. I was like, I, he knew you didn't have a dad, right? I mean, you know, you're trying to get some information. Who doesn't know at this point? <laughs> I really leave with it. Like I'm Josh Beck, never met my dad, trying my best. Well, I mean, but this is a, that's a big deal. Yeah. But no, no, you're right. And he, uh, he looked at me and he was like, find your apostles. And I said, no, no. I meant, how do I become the biggest actor in the world? No, I... And I was like, what? I was like, I think I'm Jewish. I think that's like more of like a New Testament deep track, apostles. Like, I don't know if Moses had apostles. And he just was like, find the people 
that you feel make you better, that you want to share your wins with and your setbacks with, that you will look to their counsel for the moments of complete and utter success and also like strife and frustration. He's like, and if you're in a room of people where you feel any other way about them, he's like, I would suggest you leave immediately. And of course, like I, I say in the book, the, you know, the the teacher will reveal themselves when the student is ready. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't ready to hear that at that point, but it had always stuck with me, this idea of like collecting these people in your life. I always say like, if you're wondering if the person in your life is an apostle, Think of someone who recently said something to you that you didn't like, but you knew they were right. And because if if we were capable of hearing it, we probably would have come to it ourselves. But I always say like when an apostle speaks to me, I have this immediate reaction. Screw them, I'm the worst. They're probably right, but it's too late. Fine, I'll do it. <laughs> and, if, and I've been lucky to have a few people like Sir Ben in that way. Yeah. What have you learned being a husband, you, you know, you, you, this, you stayed, you're in. Yeah. And, and I think, and I experienced this, Laird taught me vulnerability. I always split. Um, really? Yeah. Me too. I'm that way. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, my mom left for, she took a little parenting hiatus from age two to seven and then my dad had passed away when I was five. And wow. so it was, you know, I think Laird tells a story often that I said to him when we were dating, you know, no one's above my survival. And I didn't even finish it with like, that means you. It just, that was sort of my mentality. I can't even believe I, I verbalized that. Yeah. But it takes courage to be vulnerable. It's not the other way around. I wasn't stronger because I, I would leave an uncomfortable situation or not be you know, confrontational. So you're in a long relationship, you're married. What have you learned about what it takes to be a, a partner it's a great question. I, well, to your point, I, I, a lot of people, I, I really resist the this idea of like love at first sight or I fell for them right away. Like, I don't know if that exists or if it exists, it's not love to me. It's like attachment and lust. And if yeah. love comes eventually and it turns out that it was all this perfect storm, great. But I always say like love is this idea of allowing someone to prove themselves over and over again through time, through challenge. I always say love is when you have um, food poisoning (laughs) and your partner's like getting you Gatorade and making an appointment at the urgent care and not, you know, judging you for whatever's going on in that bathroom. (laughs) Like, and I, yeah, I believe like happiness, like love is, is an action. And, you know, my wife, I, she holds me to such a great standard. She forces me to kind of look at my my BS, my defense mechanisms, my desire to always be like sticky and um, people pleasing and allowing me to sort of honor my my deeper truth, the things that really turn me on and the things that get me excited, my soul excited. She's taught me restraint of pen and tongue, how to not talk so much mm. and... And she's also like, one thing I, I respect about her so much is like, she has this level of, um, I, I don't even want to say it's polite, but it's like this, she has this way about her of like what's acceptable and unacceptable in a, in a public forum. And it, it has forced me to really clean up my act. And I see the way she treats like her elders 
or peers or even people that like piss her off and annoy her. And it's, I think it's a great trait that she shares with her dad. It's like this ability in which to just sort of be the water, not the rock. Like she doesn't have to dig her feet in and be heard. It's just like, if this is an uncomfortable situation, like we can just move past it. We don't have to, you know, make a stand. Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy for you. I thank you. I'm so I'm happy really, for you. I'm happy I'm to really, know you. I'm really happy for you. And I want you to know what I see when I see you is somebody so lovable, but not because you're funny <laughs> and nothing to do with performance and that you are a person who listens. When Whenever we engage, I, I feel that you're present and the fact that you're curious and willing to take a look at it. So when your friend said, you know, 90%, I totally get that. You, you're, whoever gets to know you is fortunate on whatever level. And I just, I really appreciate that you wrote this book. Happy people are annoying. And I would say that if there's a lot of stories in here that are, um, you know, they're, they're heavy, Hmm. you know? and, And when I say that, I mean like they're heavy topics. However, it's also, and you did a beautiful job of not making too light of it, but you did make it really entertaining. Mm, so I, I, uh, I appreciate it because it's, it's not easy to do. And, and uh, it takes a lot, of, a lot of courage to just say, hey, this is who I am and some of my stories and, and share those with people. Because a lot of people, there's going to be a lot of people who resonate with this. I just want to f- finish up with, um, I want you to just tell me about Sharon because Sharon feels important to me. I feel like we all need moments where we have Sharon's come in our life to kick us in the ass a little to help us. Yeah, I, well, right before I talk about Sharon, I just want to talk about like, I give you a shout out in the book because Oh like, yeah, that's right, I was surprised. Nobody told me I was reading the book and um, you did, because we pull trained together. Well, I, I think sort of you and Laird and, and such a beautiful quality about the both of you that's such a metaphor for all the times that I've been lucky enough to hang out with you guys is like, I had a podcast years ago and I said, who are the people that I look up to? And it would be easy. And this is just me, you know, talking through the lens of 16 year old chubby Josh to look at you and Laird and think of you guys like, you know, the Tom Brady's like they're attractive, they're fit, they have it all. Meatheads. We're meatheads. Yeah. Yeah. You're the goal. Like, I'm just like, these people are nothing like me, but I look up to them. I'm a fan. So I remember reaching out over social media and, you know, having people far less um, famous and uh, people far less as accomplished as the two of you give me a much harder time about interviewing them for the podcast. And like literally like a friend, you guys got back to me immediately and said, whenever you want to come, let's do it. Like, so already I was like, wow, I'm walking into like this really warm environment. And then getting to interview the both of you over a year of like, you know, these two different interviews, being invited to train, you like having this moment with me in the pool where you spoke really directly to me. And I remember you said like, and it you led with, you know, you have a strong mind. <laughs> like you were like, I like you gave me this feeling of like, I appreciate that you're here and trying to keep up with this. So I'm going to speak to you in a very like clear way and we can make alterations to the ways in which you're, you're not at the elite level that we're at yet. But like, as long as you're here meeting me here, I'm willing to shepherd you along this journey. And like, that's so important. Like, and that speaks to who you and Laird are and whether it's, 
you know, allowing some schmo to come over and interview you or being in the pool or what have you. It's like, that's it. It's, you know, we were talking about it in the sauna, Laird and I, it's like paying it forward. This idea of like taking all this goodness that you've accrued in your life and saying, who's the next generation? Who can I pass this along to? I, I love the phrase, um, help your fellows boat to the other side and yours too will cross. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that's so much a part of your, you know, secret sauce is that generosity. Well, it's also selfish, right? I want, I want to keep that flywheel spinning. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want it to stop. So it's interesting. Laird and I are different, even though he seems kind of has this exterior, a little more gruff. I'm actually the sort of more calculated. Hmm. And somebody said to me once like, oh my goodness, you seem so humble. And I'm like, yeah, no, I don't think I am humble. I just think I know the laws of the universe. Yes. And I just know it's better. Yeah. And what happens is, is if you live that way long enough, you start to experience how you can connect with people, maybe with an initial thing of like, if I can help or say, yes, I, sh- I should, mm. and that flywheel. And then you realize like, oh, it's the only way to live. Mm-hmm. It's the only way. And listen, when someone's willing to show up, it takes balls, it takes totally. courage. Like someone to go, can I come? And you go, yeah, come on, I'll take care of you. So thank you. So tell me about oh, Sharon. Sharon. So, you know, I, I had this moment, I did this show with John Stamos when I was 29 uh, called Grandfathered. And it was like this big, exciting moment. And I'd been on social media for a while. And now I booked this big TV show and they were like, this is it, you know, you've arrived. And I just remember that slowly but surely every week, sort of the viewership went down almost to the point that at, towards the end of the show, one of the crew members said like, hey, I'll see you next season. And I was like, I doubt it. <laughs> Um, so the show gets canceled and and it becomes very clear for me that I had had these blind spots that I had accrued that I started seeing on Red Dawn almost seven years prior, where I just said, I know I can be good. I've certainly had like a, a healthy amount of success, but what did I attribute it to? I was like, I was just, I, I lacked consistency. I could be really good or really not good. I was like a a football player who does great at the combine, but can't play on game day. Mm. And, or I talk about like, I was like a fighter who, you know, uh, with a record of 20 and 20, you know, (laughs) you know, and people go, and you want to say to people like, well, didn't you see me? Like I was, I I, I was fighting at Madison square garden a couple of years ago. They're like, yeah, but now you're at a Ramada. (laughs) Like, so things have changed. So I knew there was these blind spots and I think in a deep way I was using it at, my lack of of facing my my uh, looking at these blind spots i was sort of using it as this defense mechanism to save me from the idea that if one day things didn't work out the way i'd hoped i would have this slight fail safe this idea that like yeah but i never gave it 100% i didn't give give all of myself cuz who wants to be that vulnerable so I was lucky enough, a, a, an apostle in my life, Vincent D'Onofrio, brilliant actor who happened to be my manager's client as well. And we were having dinner one night and I don't know why, I just asked him randomly. I said, do you know of any good acting teachers in, in LA? And he's like, there's one and her name is Sharon Chatton and she's been my teacher for 20 years. And she'll teach you method acting the way it was taught in the actor's studio, which was like, Pacino and, you know, Paul Newman and, and, you know, the greats. 
if you really want to invest it, she's the one. And I said, great. And then I didn't call her for two years because I had more bad acting to do. But I knew that I was at this impasse. Like I knew that I was in this inflection point that if I never faced this thing, that I'd probably get more opportunity, but it would never be the thing I wanted to do. And that eventually I'd accrue enough bad reviews to where I wouldn't get opportunity. So I call her one day, this was about 2017, five years ago, and I walk into her class and and I stand there and I'm, I begin this scene with this other actor and she stops us within 20 seconds. And she proceeds in a very, not I think unlike the way you might approach it, which was like, it wasn't mean, it was just brutal. It just was honest and direct of like all the ways in which I was, I was a fake. Faking it, yeah. She in that moment, yeah. She didn't say that I was a fake, but it was just, she made very clear that I was not doing what was required to be good. And I was like, and everything's firing in my mind to be like, but but I've accomplished so much, mm-hmm. but I've worked. Like, but the business told me I was good once. I was good once, well, what happened? And I literally had to face that for like four months straight of every week walking in there and just sort of being pilloried and accepting this idea that like, oh God, like I actually don't know what I'm doing. And and Laird said this when I interviewed him for the podcast, he's like, so few people are willing to begin again and to be students again because they accrue enough success and they get old enough to where they're too resistant of being uncomfortable. And so for four months straight, I sat in that class and looked at these people who probably watched me growing up and was like, I suck. I'm the worst in class. Like, and Jane from Omaha, who's only been in, in, you know, school plays and Rick, who's, you know, 26 and, you know, has only done commercials. Like, yeah, here I am, a guy who's like done a fair amount of stuff and I suck. And, um, and eventually, slowly but surely, I got better. You know, and I allowed what Sharon was teaching to enter into kind of the way that I approached work. And I learned the basics. You know, acting to me always seemed like this weird alchemy. You were either good at it or you were not. Mm. And like through going to class every week for years and years and years, I learned that like, no, it's just a grouping of the basics. There's an alchemy to it, like anything beautiful and artistic. But like, there's a lot within your power that you can do to put your best foot forward and make it good if you're willing to do the work. I just didn't know what it was. So I, you know, Sharon is still my teacher till, you know, this day. I go to class every week and when I'm working on something, then we'll just, Mm -hmm. you know, we'll do private sessions. But she, you know, I always say about a great teacher, what separates a great teacher from just a normie is you don't have to be a musician to know when someone plays the wrong note. You just have to have ears. Mm-hmm. Like, that doesn't sound good. But a great teacher can hear the wrong note and teach you how to fix it. And that's what she did for me. She was like, here's where the inconsistencies are. And if you double down on the basics and the fundamentals and really learn the thing that you think you've given your whole life to, like good things will come. And I, I'm so glad I did it. It's interesting where it's that reminder in that, which is a craft that she gave you, she taught you how to have tools, Mm. which I would imagine gives you so much confidence. Yes. So that if you go in for an audition, which is already very intimidating and scary, and I don't care who you are, 
those things are not set up to be easy. Oh. They're brutal. Yes. But what a gift to do something for so many years and now be like, oh, I have new tools and I can come in and I can navigate my way in and out of situations. I think people get scared thinking, oh, but I'm supposed to know. Yes. And it keeps us from asking for help. You know, it's like me in my own fitness life. I have so many things that I try to work on or I need to work on and I need to get help mm. because I'm moving the wrong way or I'm doing the wrong something. And it's interesting to feel like, oh, but I'm supposed to know. No, you need to get help. Yes. I need more. I need new information. I need more. And by the way, I go to places and <laughs> someone will be helping me and I am bad at it. Are like you? some of my movement patterns are really bad. The worst, actually. <laughs> Seriously, the worst. And do you find you can just make up for it because you're so adept in other ways? No, like, I mean, it's going to get you. That's sure. the thing. It's going to turn into an injury. It's going to turn into something. Yes. And so I really, I just wanted you to tell that story because I think we all experience this maybe in our work life where maybe we've been the manager of something for 15 or 20 years, but the world is changing. Yes. So we need to go, maybe go find someone a little bit younger and go, hey, how is this working now? And not to be afraid of that, because that is a lot of power. And staying curious and open and being willing to be like, I don't know. Even though I know this over here, yeah. I don't know this over here. And so I, I really appreciate that story. So thank you and shout out to Sharon, because uh, she sounds like a badass. She takes no shit. She's in her 70s, and she's like <laughs> sharp and awesome. And I, I'll never forget, I, around three months into starting to take her class, I was like really just... I was feeling like, oh God. What, Did Paige what? have to prop you up each time and like send you out the door? <laughs> I would literally, because her classes would be from seven o'clock at night and sometimes it would go as late as like midnight or one. So I'd like come home and I'd be like, and think I didn't have a kid yet. And You'd I'd be wake like, her up to tell her like, that. I'm spiraling. <laughs> wake <Spat>. up. <laughs> wake up, Paige. I got to talk to you. Yeah. Like, you know, the whole thing that like <laughs> keeps all the lights on here. Apparently I'm awful at it. <laughs> No, I'm the worst. <laughs> this is bad. This is bad news. You sure you want to be with me? For all of us. Like, get out now. Right now. Like, it's fine. We can go drop the papers. I'll sign. It's no problem. <laughs> and I I remember I was like, really, and, and another credit to Sharon, being a good teacher, she was like in tune with where I was at mentally. Yeah. And I remember getting a call Would from she her. ease off of you once in a while? Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> and by the way, like three months isn't that long. Cause I remember the one class where I literally just knew the scene and I, I applied everything I'd learned over those three months and her watching it and going, that was so fucking great. And I was like, oh, oh God. That's how like, good did that feel? That turning point. And, and then mm. I had like a couple great, you know, weeks like that. And then, like, and then, but eventually it became, I think there was a, a slight bit of that sort of like, I'm going to wear you down a little bit and to like, to really open your ears. And then once you can really hear me, like, then I'm going to totally support you. And I remember she called me and she's like, you know, you've worked a lot. She's like, so it's really hard for you to be bad. And I see that in a lot of people who've had some success. She's like, but what I'll tell you is this. She's like, I, you know, the actor's studio was sort of created to be a gym for actors by Lee Strasberg in the 60s and 70s. And this idea of like, we need a place because it's really hard to act. It's not like guitar or painting where you can kind of do it while you're alone. You need a safe space. It's not in front of the camera all the time to try things. And she's like, I would watch really famous people come to the actor's studio and try things that were out of their wheelhouse. Like you know, Romeo and Juliet or something like 
that they would never, you know, be thought of of doing in their traditional career and leave, you know, and sometimes fall to tears because it's just not what they were used to, not what they were good at. She's like, but they would feel like, like a bravery would come over them. Like they faced this, this giant and, and they knew that they were growing and that they'd get there, but they had to be willing to be bad, even though out there they were on billboards. And, and that so stuck with me, this mm. idea that like, I'm sure some of my heroes have maybe been in a similar position, probably not Chris Hemsworth, but no. certainly me. No, he probably could even slay Romeo and Juliet, that oh, guy. Yeah. I'm sure imagine? he could do it for sure. <laughs> he has no problem. Oh, None. Shout out, Chris. He's, do, he's do, happy do, every day. Do some Shakespeare <laughs> for all of us. <laughs> you know, I get when you say that, it's like the, the growth, it, it's also reminding like we can be too, we don't have, we're not being a fraud. We can be to a lot of things simultaneously. Yes. And to give ourselves that room to do it is like a great freedom. And I, and I also think, for example, Paige and your friends and your life and your work, all of that will grow with you because you're growing. Those will be continue to be enriched. And I think people don't realize that impact of just trying new things and being like, man, this is so scary, but okay. Mm. Um, and, and it's also like a practice. I guarantee you that after doing that, then you can do that easier in your life where yes. you're, you're like, I've done, you know, some scary stuff and I, you know, I'm still here and I can, you know, keep trying. What, what still scares you? I think parenting always makes me something I'm concerned about. Mm. I try not to be scared of it. I just, but I know it's like something that scares me. I think um, I'm trying to pursue things that I'm genuinely attracted to and take them all the way over the the line. Mm. And I was actually talking to Justin earlier about this, where sometimes I go like, oh, do good and be successful, but not too successful. Mm. Cause I wasn't raised that way. I wasn't groomed to be a winner or a champion or whatever bullshit words we put on it. So it was like, wow, I, you know, we have a pretty good amount of success. We're good. And sometimes there's a part of me that wants to dream. And it isn't about more, mm. more material things, more money, more attention. It's about how expansive and how big can you make an idea happen? So that's the thing that I, I'm always monitoring in myself, which is why would I limit myself? And maybe that goes back to the six foot 12 year old, which is like, okay, I'm going to be big, but you know, maybe not too big. Sure. And so I, I think that's something I'm, I try to face, but living with Laird has been helpful about being in fear because it's, you know, it, it doesn't, it's not that it, I can't control it. Mm. It hasn't happened. He's like, it's not coming in through the gate. And I'm like, you're right. So why am I going to live in that state? And just, you know, trying to be a decent person, you know, you, it's like, that feels really important to me. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So Justin, I'm going to give you one crack at it. You get any question you want. I have a male perspective. One, Justin. One crack. Here we go. Well, it doesn't have to be one question. It's one. just a crack. If you have something. I, I have a very, I, I, I do have one question. Um, what is the elevator pitch to modern parents that say, hey, my kid's going to be an actor? Oh my oh. gosh. That's a, don't do it. Okay. Perfect. That's it. We're good. But what, I, what if the kid wants to? Like you, you have, you have an, you have a charisma. It's, it is what it is, right? You've got these shiny eyes, this endearing smile. It's infectious. Like you, there, 
to see you, it's like, yes, you are one of the things you should be doing is doing that. Sure. Um, what if the, what if the kid has the, the thing? I, I'm <laughs> in all these years. <laughs> You got me good on the last one. Uh, here's, I don't. Friends, think, I, have, I have specific friends who are like, oh, she's gonna be an actress. I'm like, no. Huh. Yeah. Is it for you or is it for that? I don't know. It's a great point. Look, my as I said, single mom, only child, very fi financially insecure. Like a lot of elements were in place for me to embrace this very unorthodox lifestyle. And to my mom's credit, she's like, listen, I relocated us to California not on a whim, you booked a massive TV show. Yeah. She's like, and I knew it gave you confidence and you needed that at 14. And if it had been Little League, I was like, who are you kidding? <laughs> She's like, or an instrument or whatever, I would have supported that. It just happened to be this like weird thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I would say this, I, I can only speak for my son. I don't know what's to be gained from from doing it professionally at a super young age. I, in fact, I think you're fighting against a lot of the child actor tropes and what people immediately sort of compartmentalize you if they see you have success at a really young age. Because for every uh, Zendaya or Shia LaBeouf or Miley Cyrus, there's like thousands of kids that perpetuate sort of like the, the stereotype. So if it were my kid, I would say, Max, do every, do every school play. If you want to go to acting class, if you want to go to like, I also tell people like, go to clown class, go to voice class, do everything even like in a sort of parallel way to performing. And as an actual professional actor, I, I would tell a lot of actors like, go hang out with cops, lawyers, and doctors, because there's a good chance if you're auditioning for television, you will play one of those three things a few times in your career. I just played a cop. It's like going out around the, like, instead of sitting there with a the script and be like, how would I be like, freeze? Like, go see how real people say it. Like, and then you don't have to BS it. But again, I, so for my son, I would say, do it for fun as much as you want, but not for money. And when you're 18, you can go to Juilliard or you can major in finance and go to Wharton Business School and forget this pipe dream. No, okay. <laughs> You know, and then do it. Like, I just want to give them the fundamentals. I don't know if you need to do it for money before 18. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Like it. Sure. <laughs> Josh Peck. Thank you. Thanks for visiting. Congratulations on your book. Thank you. This was awesome. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like, rate, subscribe, and leave us a review. All of my music was graciously done by Frank Zumo and Tom Thacker. If you want to see some of the behind the scenes action, just follow me at Gabby Reese. And remember, don't miss new episodes every Monday. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.